With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network. So, Stephen Dubner, I have you with me. You're the co-author of Freakonomics, Super Freakonomics, Think Like a Freak. I smell a theme. Uh, And now... A collection of well, I'm not going to say the collection yet, but you and Stephen Levitt, your other co-author on Freakonomics, you have a book coming out today called "When to Rob a Bank," and so it's basically another Freakonomics book because you have it's a collection of thoughts and essays and blog posts and so on that you've that you've done on the Freakonomics site over the past eight. Or nine years. Ten years. Ten years. Ten year anniversary. So that's incredible. So, you know, normally a lot of people say, oh, it's just a collection of blog posts I can read for free. So I'm going to just deal with that objection right up front. It's a good objection. It's a good objection. But but the reality is you would never get it curated, edited, whatever else you did with it in this format that we're about to look at right now. Like, I really appreciate. First of all, I'm not going to go back and read 10 years of your blog post. That would, uh, you know. Yeah, because I I had to do that in order to do the book. And believe me, you'd want to shoot yourself in the head. But I'm really grateful and I'm willing to. What what I'm paying for here is this is almost like a Freakonomics experiment. Like uh, what I'm willing to pay for here is not necessarily you writing this book because you guys wrote this book. And plus your other co-authors, you have many um, different guys who who are and people who wrote the blog post. But what I'm really paying for here is your ability to curate and organize in a reasonable or logical, semi-logical order uh, all of these 10 years worth of posts. How many how many posts overall did you have over the 10 years? As of today, there's probably 8,500 or something. 8,500. And how many posts are in this book? There's not- 132. So, so, so there's some serious thought put into the curation. Like what, what made... Uh, first off, let me, let me read some of the, the titles or some of the topics. Okay. Um, obviously, there's the title of the book, which was the title of one of the posts, When to Rob a Bank, right. which discusses, which analyzes the data <laughs> on when the optimal times to rob a bank were. And we'll, we'll get to that in a second, um, because there was something interesting about that post that I wanted to talk about. Um, there's another one, Does Obesity Kill? There's um, uh, the, the more on the 10,000-hour rule where you analyze the guy who, who want, who's starting from scratch – Wants to put in 10,000 hours and then go on the PGA tour. There's um, the best way to cut gun deaths, which had some interesting solutions. There's uh, the Q&A with an escort, which followed up on, I guess that was in uh, Super Freakonomics. Correct. Um, uh, how to do a terrorist attack. Uh, chapter Several chapters on that. Uh, um, I can't read my writing. Um, so one of the titles, is, I can't read the writing. Want me, um, to, want me to look at it? No. Uh, okay, yeah. Can you see why? Why isn't uh, why isn't something more something? Which is like which is which is actually I don't have a big theme of economics, <laughs> so we can leave it at that. Um, 
So what were some of the topics actually? What made the cut? Like what what for you defined the cut? Was it I mean, what I would like to hear is if there, if it was data driven, like number of comments or number of engagement. Well, I will tell you that um when you have so it took us a long time to decide to put out a book of blog posts because we had people asking us to do it for a lo- for a, a long time. And I'm sorry to interrupt. I'm going to interrupt okay. every now and then. I like it. But but I I will note that every single post was interesting in the sense that it got my it, it got my mind asking a question. Oh, good. So yeah. as long as it triggers, and I've noticed this in our other project that we're working on, as long as something kind of triggers curiosity, it makes me think. Even if it doesn't have the answer, it's worth asking the question. Yeah, a lot of times, you know, I mean, even in our books, which take three, four years to germinate and are built on empirical research usually, a lot of times they're even coming up with the answer, the why. I mean, we can tell the what pretty well, but the why can be really hard. Even that's really hard. So often in blog posts, you know, you are you are kind of raising a question um, almost as much as you are. I mean, you try to provide answers, certainly, but um in terms of what made the cut, honestly, it was um, – <clears throat> so there were metrics that you used – that we used to try to decide and definitely number of comments was one of them because you figure, you know, 300 people comment on something, then obviously it's worth looking at again. But basically we went through and read or at least kind of skimmed like all 8,000 posts on the blog from 10 years. When you say we, both you and Levitt? No, Levitt, you know, this is not Levitt's thing. Although I will say this, Levitt did – I I haven't actually counted who wrote more posts in here because these are not joint writing. These are one one or the other. I think he's probably got more posts. Now, I picked the posts mostly, so maybe I just liked his writing to mine, preferred his to mine. I don't know. I think for you, you – ask a lot of questions and he throws himself into a lot of situations. Well, that's definitely true. He's, so so he's able <clears> to then document you you have to you have to ask and answer the question and, and then sort of work on it. Whereas he just has to document not just cuz it's when you're throwing yourself into these situations there's a little work involved, but he just documents the situation and that's a post. Like so for instance, when he's pulled over in West Palm Beach Airport and um his whole bag is filled with documents <laughs> on 9-11 with all the photos of the terrorists right. and they haul him over and almost threaten him with Guantanamo Bay. That's an interesting post just by itself. Yeah, yeah. He, it's uh, a story. He's actually uh, much more willing to write about his own life and foibles and so on um, than I am. Or maybe I just don't have as many interesting – You know, I don't g- get almost arrested as often as he does. But um, – I'm not so sure about that. So <laughs> – so when I say we, no, Levitt didn't sit and read 8,000 posts. So the way it worked was um, – so so this idea has been germinating for a long time. Years and years and years ago, I was an editor at the New York Times Magazine. And I was there at the time when the magazine celebrated its 100th anniversary, which I think was 1996. So the Times Magazine began publishing in 1896. And we, being a rather self-important publication, decided that we should not – You are the elite. <clears throat> we are the elite. The media elite, the New York media elite. You're like the definition of it. To the nth. And we decided we should commemorate it not just with one anniversary issue and not just even two, but three separate issues in 1996 that commemorated the 100 years of the end of the Times magazine. One of them was a photo issue, which I was the I was kind of in charge of. And I was very, very, very glad because that's indirectly how I met my wife, who's a photographer and whose work showed up in that 
100. You know, she's a great photographer, my wife. So one of her pictures was in there. So I got to know her through that then married her. But another one was just literally like the best writing from 100 years. And this meant sitting down with bound issues of 100 years worth of magazines. So you're reading like W.E.B. Du Bois and you're reading Norman Mailer and you're reading all the great Times journalists over and over. Okay, I will say with that, though, writing style sort of feels different decade by decade. So like Norman Mailer's, you know, kind of most outrageous writings from the 50s would be almost like ridiculous now. Would not be, I wouldn't say wouldn't be published now, but would be rewritten and, and titled differently and everything would be different. Which is why we ended up in that anniversary issue <clears throat> arranging it chronologically. It's like 1890s, 1900s, da, da, da. So it was more of a historical document. So in a way, putting together When to Rob a Bank was doing that, sitting down and reading the archives. Now, there was only 8,000, there were only 8,000 posts to read. New York Times Magazine, there were hundreds of thousands and so on. Plus, I knew all the stuff because either I'd written them or Levitt had written them and I'd read them or maybe edited them a little bit when Levitt put them up. I was – for a long time, I was acting as kind of the editor-in-chief of the blog as well. But then we also hired editors. Once we kind of got a little bit bigger, we hired – I always had like one editor working on it who would copy edit and try to you know get good art and stuff like that. And so we asked – when we started to put the book together, I asked two editors, one the current one, Beret Lamb, and the other the most recent previous one, Dwa- uh, Dwyer Gunn, who still also pitched in and edited sometimes when Beret was editing. And I asked them to also go through the whole blog. And they both picked – they did like the first cut triage, their favorites. And in that, we did use popularity to some degree as a metric. And there were probably – I'd say between 500 and 1,000 of the 8,000 posts that made that first cut. And then I made my own list. Then we kind of cross, you know, cross-referenced. And then I just started to really go through that smaller pool and read them all and throw out the majority of them looking for the best. And the best could have been ones that were interesting, where you learned a lot, that were funny, that were unintentionally extremely outdated maybe, but and also, then decide how to arrange them. Also, you know, one thing about your blog as opposed to – like let's say I was going to go to – uh, another blog, like a sports blog or Nate Silver's political blog or something, the content there is usually not evergreen, meaning it's good now and it'll be good five years from now and it's good 10 years from now. Because you're because of sort of the quasi-scientific aspect of Freakonomics, it's very empirical-based, a lot of your posts. So it's not like the day to rob a bank is going to change, you know, a decade from right. now as to now. So this is evergreen content um, that 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 can survive. Whereas, you know, a lot of blogs is about yesterday's news. Yeah. And well, you could never compile into a book. Well, we had a lot of that, too, but we got rid of all of that. So, yeah. So I would say you're right. And that most of what um, most of what are the best posts and the ones that made the book are the ones that are basically not about like something that happened, but it's about an idea. So it might be illustrated by a thing that happened. But, um, you know, here's an example. One one post I like in there, it's called something like uh, – I can't remember what the post is called. But it's about – maybe it's called The Cost of Fearing Strangers, right? Oh, uh, yeah. I remember that. And it was about a couple of incidents that happened in the news. But then it used them to go into a broader thing. So the incidents that happened were this guy who I think was dressed up as Santa Claus – Right, and then he kills his family. <clears throat> kills his whole family and himself, right? A white guy dressed up as Santa Claus. And the other guy was a Muslim. And there's a Muslim a with his family going on a plane to Florida, I believe. 
and they were at, they were heard talking about the quote safest seats on the plane, and they were taken and thrown off the plane and just about you know almost arrested. And we, and then the airline wouldn't even after they were clearly innocent of everything, like just the most innocent family in the world, the airline still would not fly them to Florida. That that is true. That is true. That was a a, a tangential you know bummer. Did, did you ever ask the airline why? No, no. Um, with a lot of this stuff, as in the nature of blogging, and this is where it's different than like doing the podcast or books, we didn't do much reporting. You know, it was more like <clears throat> essay commentary and then try to relate it to empirical stuff. So in this case, what those two incidents, one where a guy killed everyone, a bunch of people around him who knew him well and he knew well, and the other a bunch of strangers that were thought to be dangerous but weren't. That led me to want to write about, you know, how dangerous are strangers really? And if you think about, you know, if you watch TV, if you watch crime TV or if you grow up in America like I grew up, I was so scared that some stranger was going to break in the back door and, or do so, and do something terrible. Or, you know, when we think about when people are scared of crime, murder, especially sexual assault, how people are scared of kidnapping. And it turns out if you look at the data, the vast, vast, vast majority of those kind of crimes are committed not by strangers but by people who know the victim. And so, so this became a whole way to explore the notion of why – are we so scared of people that we don't know when almost never do they actually do anything to hurt us? Now, you and I have a regular ongoing debate about this offline, but I would argue there's an evolutionary biology, biological reason for or an evolutionary psychological reason for that. If I'm with my tribe, chances are I know everybody in my tribe. Who have to you trust ever read the Bible? Have you ever read the Bible? Y- yes. Who I kills have. who? It's not the it's they're killing each other. Constantly. I mean, that's right. But but from an evolutionary perspective, I'm more scared of the guy from the other tribe who just sort of shows up than from the people in my own tribe. Obviously, if you've if you're in a real tribal setting and you've got another tribe that you know to be your enemy, of course, you're going to be scared of them. But the fact is, if you look at most of the violence that is recorded in the Bible is friend on friend, brother on brother. Well, and there's a reason there, because. Because of the tribal situation, you're mo- 99.999% of the time, you're with people in your tribe. So who's going to kill each other? Chances are someone okay, in your tribe. That's true. And you could make the same argument for now, which is, you know, most of your exposure to people who might do yeah. you, right? On the other hand, I think it makes a different, broader, maybe happier argument, which is there aren't that many bad people out there looking to do harm to you or me or anybody else. And that that's a lot of the underlying message of a lot of stuff we write about in terrorism too. The, the, the amount of terrorism that's carried out compared to the cost of terrorism, that's cost of anti-terrorist activities is tiny. Well, which brings <laughs> to mind one of your posts, which is um, how I, I forget the title now from the chapter, but it's basically how to do it, how to do a terrorist. If attack. you were a terrorist, how would you attack? Yeah. Right? And, right. and, um, uh, I think Levitt wrote that one. And one of the things he suggests, quote unquote, suggests is that if you're a terrorist, you know, you don't want to do the plane thing again because there's a there's extra security and B, it's been done. So what you would do is arm a bunch of guys and just randomly send them in cars, randomly shooting pe- people on highways. Uh, again, I guess his theory is that would create uh, mass hysteria about driving on highways. We we don't know if that's true or not, but uh, that's his theory. And then you got a lot of uh, backlash for that, obviously, because it was in the New York Times at the time, your your blog, and uh, people were concerned that you were somehow suggesting something that terrorists would never have thought of before. Right, right. But the question I have is, why haven't 
terrorists done something like that? Well, they did. That was the Washington sniper attack, right? So there was the guy with his teenage, uh, yeah. you know, kind of uh, son figure. And really that post was saying, right, if you if – you, like do you remember – like anybody who remembers those Washington sniper attacks, which were, I don't know, 12 years I, – I, I don't, actually, I don't remember now if it was before or after 9-11 – uh, maybe it was after, which is why there was so much panic. But I, I honestly don't remember. But um, there was so – I mean Washington, D.C., the whole area was shut down, right? Yeah. People didn't go to school. People Highways didn't go were shot. closed. And that was two guys in a car with a gun. So the argument is if you really wanted to you know, terrorize America, you do that times 50. Take one pair of people or even one person in 50 states or 50 – whatever you want to do and you do that for three days. That would cripple America, right? It's that easy. And so the argument was twofold. One is there can't be that many people out there who want to do that much terror because look how easy it is. And if there were more people, we'd see a lot more of it. The other argument is if you're on the side of the good guys, which presumably you are, I am, Levitt is, law enforcement is, the vast, vast, vast majority of us are, wouldn't you like to think of other ideas that the bad guys might be playing around with so that you can anticipate them rather than wake up and be surprised that, holy cow, someone flew a plane now in, into the World Trade Center. Now, we know in retrospect that was not a new idea. We know in retrospect that there was a lot of intel on that and so on. But the post that we put on the blog was meant to draw out uh, suggestions, ideas. What are some ways that terrorists might attack that would be worth thinking about in order to prevent them. And as you said, some people took our thought exercise to heart and said, you know, here's some vulnerabilities I think about. And But a lot of people just got really upset that we even raised the idea. And I'm curious about the mentality. Like, again, a blog is not just a post, but it's the community around mm-hmm. a blog. So I'm curious about the mentality of someone who who is outraged by the post because it must mean they they, they think in their minds, oh, the terrorists would never have thought of this right. trivially simple idea if not for brilliant economist and writer Stephen Levitt and Stephen Dubner. Yeah. So do you think people actually thought that way or were they just or, – or was this saying more about the commenter just being an angry person? Yeah, I don't know. I think about that question a lot. I think that um, I, the bigger an audience you try to get or the bigger an audience you have – Obviously, the more likely you are to have variance in reaction. And if you cultivate and develop. So one thing that I liked about our blog a lot was that we really cultivated a really nice audience. And by cultivate, I mean we really communicated with them. We interacted with them. It's not, it's not like we answered all the emails or something, but we, we wrote posts that were meant to be read and commented upon. And then we would read those comments and consider them for what we wrote down the road. And – so you get to know your community well, and it was a relatively small community when we started, then it grew. When we, when we moved to the New York Times, however, so our blog was on the Times for like three or four years, that was totally different. That was just like opening up, you know. Like you know, did the Times freak out about the terrorist Yeah, post? and that was the first day we were and, – and literally that day was the first day we're at the Times – and that day, and I believe the New York Observer, there'd been an interview with me about our blog. It was kind of a big deal. Freakonomics blog is going to be featured on the New York Times. We were the first outside blog, you know, to 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 have that arrangement. And the Observer reporter asked me, you know, why you guys? You know, why did they pick you or trust you to be on their site? 
And my answer was that, well, you know, I used to work at The Times and I'm a journalist and we know the standards and we kind of share the standards. And it's not like we're going to issue a fatwa or something on the blog, right? Then day <laughs> one, Levitt essentially kind of issues a self-fatwa. Yeah. And and it was not a happy day at The New York Times. But, you know, again – And Levitt, in his defense – not in his defense, just to his – true to his character – after that one day, he said, oh, my God, if they – because they shut down the comments, the Times mm. did, They because they moderate comments there. And he said, if they can't take this, why why do we want to be on their website? This is stupid. There's just too many stupid people out there getting agitated about – who don't know how to think about the world. And that's kind of what makes Levitt great but also very unusual is he sees the world in a way like, of course, you should ask this kind of question. And he doesn't understand the brain of the person who would get upset by it. And yet the whole premise of economics really is that there's this, this there's this spread between rational thought and what people actually do. Right. And you measure that. So, for instance, um, are people going to buy off an ad of a black person holding an iPod or a white person holding an iPod. So rational thought would say it doesn't matter. Right. But what you measure as an economist is the actual difference. And there's like 60% versus whatever, you know, so obviously there's kind of this statistical racism built into society. But but it seems like someone like Levitt would appreciate that there's going to be a considerable rational thought around any um, high stakes topic. That is absolutely true. But that doesn't mean that as the human who's also the economist, you don't get frustrated with it. Right. See, I, I I mean, he and I have different, you know, views on it. Like, I, I understood entirely why people were upset. And he was like, what's wrong with these people? Like, why would they possibly think this is not a good idea? And while I thought it was a good idea, I could see why some people might not think it's a good idea because there's heterogeneity – het, there's heterogeneous preferences out there. That's what makes the world – you know, we don't all want and think the same thing. Well, it would be interesting now to measure actually who wants to know and who wants <laughs> to not know. Yeah, but that's hard to measure too because then you're relying on, you know, asking people. And like you just hinted at there, if you ask people, would you buy – you know, if you have a chance to buy an iPhone used – and the seller is African-American, the seller is white, would you pay more to buy it from the white person? How many people are going to say yes? Never, right? Right. No, you have to test right. it. Right. Well, OK. So which, this is related to my next question. So in general, I don't I – don't, you know, I'm, I'm always interested in the questions you bring up on the Freakonomics blog. But I'm also trying to figure out how to make the lives of the listeners better. And so I'm going to lead to that in a second. But one question I have is – you pick this title, When to Rob a Bank, and it's, you know, one out of a couple hundred posts or really one out of – 133 – what's the subtitle say? And 131 more works. Yeah, and 131 so, more works. So there are 132 posts total. Right. So When to Rob a Bank, I would argue, isn't the most interesting post in this book. It's certainly an interesting post. They're all interesting. But it's definitely an interesting title. So um, – Have I told you the whole title story? No, and that's what oh. I want to hear. All right. Because I think in general – People don't realize how important the naming of products are. I mean, some people do and some people don't. I think you're so, right. So Levitt actually gives enormous credit to his sister, and it's a very poignant chapter in the book about his sister's uh, death, and I have some questions about that. But she came up with the name Freakonomics, which you didn't even like, but of course— That's the, a Levis. That's not quite true. <laughs> but the title Freakonomics itself 
was such an enormously good title. Yeah. We don't it's hard to say how much it contributed to the success, but you can you know that so many books then stole that idea of, you know, exonomics. Um although we you know, there was Reaganomics long before us, but still. Yeah. It's a great title and it was all Linda, Levitt's sister, and um it was just so different from everything else that we'd been thinking of and everything else that she'd been thinking of. So and, how'd you pick this title? All right. So this book was originally called Hooray for High Gas Prices. Okay. Horrible title. Really? See, yeah. Okay. I should have asked you. Just, this, just so. my – no, that's right. just my opinion. But okay. Go ahead. All right. So the reason we like that because there's a post in the book but, but, called – But then I, then I think it's a book about peak oil theory. Oh, uh, yeah. There is peak oil theory in this book. I know. There's a lot of why it. It's, uh, why it's off. But um, so the reason we liked Hooray for High Gas Prices as a title originally was that there is a post in the book called that. And like who in their right mind is happy about high gas prices? And so there's an argument that um, we should be happy about it because it will lessen consumption and it will produce alternate um, fuels, blah, 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 blah. So that was the title for a while. And the American publishers were online and it was ready to go. And then our British publishers said, we can't do that. And we said, why? And it's because we don't call gas gas. We call it petrol. And when we say gas, people think you're talking about farting. It's intestinal gas. Well, why couldn't they just have a different cover? Uh, well, they could. Well, a different title. Yeah. They could have. And I, you know, as a writer, you don't really like having same books out there with different titles so okay. much. But I, w- I was willing. So they said, can you come up with a different title? So I came up with a different title for them that I liked so much and I thought it was so superior that I then went back to the American publisher at the same time and I said, I now have a title that I want to replace um, Hooray for High Gas Prices. And this title was We Were Only Trying to Help. And I love that title because to me that embodied the spirit of the blog, which is, you know, we're just two guys. We kind of follow our own lights and we follow the data and we ask a lot of questions. We say a lot of things that make might make people upset, but really we were only trying to help. And I and both the publishers seemed to love the idea at first, and then somehow like the marketing and sales divisions got involved, and they hated it. They both. Why hated did they it. hate it? What did they give as a reason? They, I mean, hate's a strong word. No, it was hate. It was real hate because we really fought for this for a long time and could not, absolutely could not. Because Freakonomics, the publisher didn't want it originally. We fought and won for that one. This one we could not win. They said we were only trying to help. Makes us sound like we're defeatist or we're, we're stupid or we're making, I guess so. And I'm like, all that sounds great to me. But, um, so anyway, then we needed a title. So you sit and you think, and you look through all the posts and when to rob a bank stuck, stood out to me as a good title because it, it just sounds like a riddle that I want to know how to solve. It's not how to rob a bank or why to rob a bank. Those are kind of more obvious. But when, like, who would think about when to rob a bank? Well, let's do. And what do you learn from that? It has this weird self-helpish flavor to it. (laughs) Like, oh, we're going to, you know, when to make a million, when to rob a bank. But let me ask you that. Here's my take, and I'm just curious if you thought about this. What I would have done is I would have taken all 132 post titles or mm-hmm. chapter titles and I would have made Facebook ads out of them and I would have linked each one to the freakonomics.com site. This is and, what and, you did. And this that, is what you Yeah, this is what I did for choose yourself. And and I would have picked the one that had by far the statistically significant more clicks. You know, I am all in with that mode of choosing I love this basically. Title, by the way, okay. But- that's what I would have And done. we actually did a version of that for a friend's book who uh, – these guys, John List and um, 
oh, what's it? Uriganese wrote a book that ended up being called the Y axis, like the W H Y axis. And we actually on our blog posted, you know, their short list of titles and voted. So it wasn't quite the Facebook, you know, the total, you know, randomization. Um, but, you know, what's really weird is that whenever we do open it up to readers or voters and we monitor the results carefully and look at the comments, you see that what their perception of what a, quote, good title is and what ours are are really different. Yeah, but since you are empirically minded and you do trust data. Yeah, but here's it. But the end of the day, also, I don't really we don't we care a lot more about saying things the way we want to say them than saying things in a way that may optimize how many units can be sold. OK, uh, I don't enough. really you know, here's the thing. Freakonomics was luckier and bigger, was 20 times luckier and 100 times bigger than I could have ever imagined any book that I would write being. And so I figure ever since then, it's all been kind of gravy. And the last thing I want to do is to try to milk it or squeeze out extra, you know, dollars or attention that's not on its merit. So basically everything we try to do, you might – people might like it. They might not like it. They might buy it. They might not like buy it. I don't really – but we don't really worry about that too much. Every week, like when I come up with an idea for the podcast, I never think about like, oh, we should do topic X because it's been in the news and a lot of people care about it, da, da, da. It, It's always like we, we're going to do topic X because it sounds interesting, fun, maybe important, and we probably – we can try to find something to say about it. That hasn't been said because we look at it differently. That's the criteria. Well, you know, let's let's. I want to dig onto something you said in there, and we, we might. This is your second time on the podcast, but the first time was like a year and a half ago, um, and so we might have talked about, a little about this then. But I want to dig a little further into it now, particularly since the brand continues to to grow. Your life totally changed. I mean, literally, we were hanging out the day before the Freakonomics book got published. And then we spoke on the phone two days after the Freakonomics book got published. The day before, you thought it was going to be a failure or you were afraid it was going to be a failure. And two days later, it was number two on Amazon after Harry Potter. Damn Harry Potter. Yeah, it stayed there for like a year or a year and a half at number two. Harry Potter always number one. So so what ways would you say your life – I mean that's something that everybody – wishes for and dreams about like that one event that is going to change their life so drastically there's a before and after like that's the before and after of your life in this okay there's kids there's marriage there's life-changing events but career-wise that's a before and after for you and you may never have one as big as that again maybe you will i hope you do but what what was the before and after like when did you realize oh my god my life's changed so the day of publication it we started getting numbers from the publisher. We were getting, you know, point of sale numbers from Barnes Noble and Amazon and indie bookstores. And back then there was Borders and others. And they realized within like, you know, by early afternoon on the first day of sale that it was going to make the New York Times bestseller list. And they told us that. And I was like, that to me, that was already Mount Everest, right? As a writer, this was my third book, Freakonomics was, and uh, I'd worked at the New York Times, like the New York Times bestseller list, like, yeah, that's that's it. One week on the New York Times bestseller list, I would have died happy. And then it just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So it took me a while to really – and also, even though it did really well, relatively well at the beginning for a book by two guys with a weird title on topics that were all over the place, 
it took a long time for it to become like a juggernaut. It, it was a very unusual book in that most huge selling books come out their first week at their biggest and then dwindle. That's just, you know, the way that, that the trajectory goes. Ours started out kind of for us pretty good. I think it was like, I don't, I don't remember the number of copies, but we probably within the first three months, it was a slow and steady climb to where we like tripled. Hmm. And then we hit. Then Why do you think that is? Well, because it was a weird book. It was a word of mouth book. It was a book that we, we weren't on TV at all. We, the, the publishers couldn't get us on TV at all when Freakonomics first came out. And then once it started getting some heat, then everybody wanted us on TV. And then the TV exposure helped. And it was just the snowball effect generally. Then you hit uh, summer, which was slowed a little bit. Then fall picks up. And then by Christmas, we're, you know, we, we would sell more copies in one week around Christmas of that first year of Freakonomics than I'd sold like in the entire lifetime of my two previous books, which was very, you know, gratifying and very depressing at the same time. Why depressing? Because my first couple of books were pretty good. and uh, But isn't that sort of that thing where like people are just never happy? Like here you have a book that's selling right now. It sells more than anything you've ever done before. And yet you're, and yet you're depressed. I, I, honestly, <laughs> it was more depressing the idea that there are all these books out there by people like me, people like me, me mm. and people like me. Like I worked every bit as hard on those first two books as I did sure. on Freakonomics and most of my friends are writers and they work really hard on their books and to sell, you know, 50,000 copies of a, in hardcover is considered a really good day, a, a really good lifetime of a book, you know? Yeah. And that, uh, that's what, what's kind of depressing. What's the average hardcover sells like 2,000 books? If that. Yeah. If that. Yeah. So it took me a while to realize the magnitude in terms of like money especially. I, I really wasn't thinking about in terms of money. Once I realized that I was going to make money from the book and from, you know, once I realized that I was going to be able to continue having a career writing what I wanted. And by the way, not, that was it. Not to interrupt, but when I said that you were afraid the day before, your specific words to me. I think were, I might have to get a job. I yeah, think you were afraid you were not going to be able to continue having a career I had a as job, a writer. I had a job lined up. Yeah, I, I, I don't even want to say that. You could say the name nah, of the job. I'm not gonna, it, it, I, I was going to take a job. As an editor at a magazine, it was a good magazine. It was a yeah. very good, edit, a very good job at the magazine. But, you know, house. That, no, not but that one. that's what I'd been before. I'd been a magazine editor, and I knew how to make a living doing that, and I knew I could do that. But it wasn't but what you I were, wanted. But you were scared you were not going to be able to continue your career as a writer after so many uh, great books. I really loved your first two books. So, um, so then you realize at one point, okay, this is it. I can actually. I'm going to I'm going to do it. Yeah, I'm going to so do the dream. So there are two there were two when you say how did how did life change before and after there were two ways in which it changed. And they're related. One is I realized I could I was going to be able to make enough money as a writer to continue to raise a family in New York, which had always seemed like a maybe to me because New York's really expensive. But I came to love New York. My parents had, were born here, but then they, they left and I grew up in the boondocks. So to me, it was learning to become a city person, but I loved New York. My wife grew up in New York and then our kids were born in New York and we wanted to stay, but it didn't look like it was financially possible. So once I knew it was financially possible for me to raise my family in New York, that was a huge, huge, uh, just burden, you know, just a huge source of worry that went away. And then the other part that's related is I now knew that I was going to be able to continue to do what I wanted to do as a writer and have a career of it, which is a huge luxury. I mean, you know, as a magazine writer, I'd always pretty much been able to pick my assignments once I got past the very, very junior ranks. And even that's a huge uh, 
uh, luxury. Because, you know, a lot of people, if you're lucky enough to be a writer for a living, which these days there are not many jobs where you can write for a living, you're usually told what to write. You're assigned it by some guy like me. The editor says, well, you know, we think it's really important to get out there ahead of the Ben Carson campaign. It's like, yeah, you know, well, you know, I've read. So I've read all of your stuff, obviously. And uh, I probably probably the most I've read of your work is I read I've read Freakonomics probably five or six times. Really? It's more than I've read. it. Yeah. Everything else I read once. Yeah. You know, Turbulent Souls. Why do you read it so much? Because I was trying to figure out what made it different from not only your other two books, oh. but all of the other books that I felt were intelligent, equally intelligent, but somehow written differently. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot <laughs> of intelligent books out there that didn't sell as well, but had similar intelligence in terms of the ideas, in terms of making me think. And I've come up at, at different times with different theories about what made Freakonomics such a bestseller. And I think what it is, is, is I'm going to take extremes, but go ahead. You you're, just you're... said is three times in a row. I think that's the secret of good writing. What it is, <laughs> is, is. <laughs> maybe, maybe or just, it's, it's maybe word I'm a repetition. bad writer. No, it's word <laughs> repetition. You have to get people hooked on your pattern. So, Levitt always has these aha ideas that are like that blow you away. But aha ideas are not enough because there's plenty of books with aha ideas. So, for instance, in Freakonomics, the idea that Giuliani didn't reduce crime in New York City, your very first idea is so uh, aha and almost uh, I don't know the right word of it, but it, let's call it extravagant. Um, you know, the idea that Roe versus Wade is what reduced crime in New York City, uh, ultimately. Along and you, with some other things. And, but yeah. and, and you show all the science for it and everything. But what really did it, I think, is not only having that aha moment, because many books have that, but you getting in and finding the secret origin stories of every character involved. So you're a storyteller. And so putting a story around that aha, which many academics and scientists and very intelligent writers don't do, I think that combination makes make and the fact also that no one story was too long. Mm -hmm. So we can keep on like if I'm in an airplane, I can keep on reading from chapter to chapter. I think this combination made it the bestseller. And if you look at other similar books, like let's say Outliers, mm -hmm. another great example where you, you don't just explain the 10 – like Malcolm Gladwell doesn't just explain the 10,000-hour rule. He's, he combines it with the Beatles and so – and tells the story of the Beatles. So you keep doing that in a book. You can't put the book down and it's a – and then word of mouth gets around about yeah, it. Yeah. You know, look, this – what you just said, I I happen to agree with and it may seem really obvious to a lot of people but stories are – you know, way greater than the sum of their parts. And stories exert a power and a resonance that a lot of other kinds of writing, essay, theory, ex explanation, expository writing, don't have. And I mean, I say this is obvious because as a species, we've been around long enough to see that what stays with us as a species in our literature, but also in our kind of storytelling tradition are these kind of stories that, you know, like one example I give sometimes is the Bible is the best read book in the history of the world, we, we believe, and it contains the most famous laws in the history of the world, most famous and influential laws in the history of the world, right? The Ten Commandments. And yet if you ask the average American, let's say, to name the Ten Commandments, believe me, if you want to win a lot of money in a bar, no one, you know, and about 15 percent of Americans literally cannot name one of the Ten Commandments. You'd think, like, well, thou how? shalt not kill? 15 percent of Americans could not name one, right? That's so, probably the only one I can name. Oh, thou shalt not commit adultery? Well, the commentary on that would be that it's great because 
we know the laws, we just have no idea where they come from, which makes it even better, right? So that's one way to interpret that. But the uh, the the fact is that if those are the most famous laws in history from the most well-read book in history, isn't that weird? Like, why do we not remember? And my answer is that it's because we don't remember rules, laws, theory, exposition, blah, blah, blah. We remember stories. So people who might not know about the Ten Commandments might think they don't know the Bible even – Adam and Eve as the story still works. Moses as the story still works. And I think one of the reasons they work is because we're all at the end of the day at least a little bit narcissistic. And when we read a story, when it's got some character in it, like the guy that we've written about who discovered what really causes ulcers, for instance, or – Right. So you don't just write what causes ulcers because yeah. then it's boring. Not boring, but it's interesting to know what causes ulcers. But when you dive down, this is why this guy got interested. Right. But see, that's the part that I like. It's, it's This is the why. Like what is it about this person, this group of people – what was in their background? What was in their families? What was it, you know, who was the missing parent? Who was, you know, what what was the missing link for them that made them approach something differently than other people? Because that's what we mostly write about are people who kind of get to a solution that a lot of other people have been sniffing around, but they all just thought too conservatively. So, so, so not that good writing can be put to a formula, but let me ask you this. So you're one of the Best-selling writers of all time, mm. roughly. Okay, let's no, just say no. There's been a decade. Let's just say decade. All right. All right. Okay. One of the You're best-selling writers in English in the past. Whatever. One of the top. If I mean, think about James Patterson. James Patterson writes like a book non, every three oh, months. Nonfiction. And, okay. 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 All right. All right. Per book. I don't know. <laughs> um, so it seems like a rule of writing might be. Um, uh, a, find the extravagant aha uh-huh, or a okay. set of them right. and then always get to the why. Yeah. And, and I'll forget tell you, all the other rules, well, like all the no, rules I have of grammar. A lot, but I have a lot of other rules. All stylistic no, rules. Okay, have, okay, what are some other I rules? I got so many rules. T- tell me some because I oh, am always geez. interested. Um, you know, I, I always think about uh, Anton Chekhov is one of my favorite um, writers in part I think because he was a – a doctor. So he was a nonfiction thinker who wrote fiction plays and short stories. And Chekhov always talked about where in the arc of a story you, quote, cut into the story. So there's a, dramatic, a narrative arc of everything, but where do you choose to cut in, start the story? And depending on where you start, that's going to inform like what the reader knows about the situation. There's friction. You sense there's friction, but you don't know where it comes from. So that's really. So if I want to tell a story about like crime in America, I don't. I want to start it in a way that the reader, the minute he or she encounters that, it's almost not like a riddle or mystery necessarily, but you want to start in a place and in a way that brings them into it with some investment. Right. So in in Freakonomics, for instance, you have Sadir uh, writing about why do um, drug dealers dealers live with their mother and you have him (laughs) in a really – you start him off in a really dangerous situation. We have – the reader has no idea what's happening. Right. And you start him off in this incredibly dangerous situation with all these like crack dealers. Right. And so so you you get to – so okay, you're doing your why but you start your why – why is he doing this in the most intense, emotionally intense situation for him? Yeah, story. I think the other thing is you always want to um, invoke or take advantage of surprise, right? I mean, not that you set up a quote surprise, but you want to surprise your reader by introducing him or her to an idea that they weren't thinking about a minute before. So like 
Nice well, graduate school. Nice graduate student comes from San Diego to go to the University of Chicago to study sociology, and he's kind of a hippie deadhead. And his first assignment is going out and knocking on doors of African American families in Chicago and asking them on a survey written by the University of Chicago Sociology Department, how does it feel to be poor and black? A, very good. B, somewhat good. You know, C, not so good. And he quickly realized that, like, the only proper answer would have been one that wasn't on there, which was, like, F for F U. You know, I mean, it was this incredible entree that this guy, Sudhir Venkatesh, that you mentioned had. To me, that's, like, that's how you tell the story. It's like you've got, a, you've got someone in a situation that is beyond what you or I would typically be in in a given day. And that makes us, like I said, because we're narcissistic, we we kind of identify with that, either pro or con. Well, and so what's interesting, like you compared Freakonomics to your other two books, but in your other two books were memoirish. So, Oh, can, I don't think I did. I mean, right, I don't but, know if I did because they're very, very, very different in yeah, almost every way. Yes, but they're also your story. So in Freakonomics, you had the and in Super Freakonomics, and in When to Rob a Bank, you have and How to Think Like a Freak, you have the benefit of many stories. Yeah. So you can pick and choose from like hundreds of well, stories and find the most emotionally intense point. Like in Turbulent Souls, you obviously find the most emotionally intense point of your entire life. Right. Well, you only have one of those. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So, but here you get to pick and choose from like hundreds of people. Totally. Well, you know, one thing that really uh, impressed me was when Saul Bellow was maybe, I don't know, late 70s, maybe early 80s, and still writing. Maybe, maybe not quite that. I can't remember. And he, he published a novella. I want to um, say it was Ravelstein, but I don't remember if Ravelstein was actually that short. I can't remember what the book Dangling was. Dangling Man? Mm, Seize the Day? Early, later, later, later. And anyway, it was a short book. It was liter- It was technically a novella, and someone asked him, you know, you're Saul Bellow, and you are – you're the most muscular, you know, writer in the history of American arts and letters, Canadian American arts and letters, let's call it. Why Why are you publishing this little 140-page book? Whatever? And he said, you know, uh, reading has changed in America. Uh, people don't have as much time for reading. Uh, and to put a 600-page book in front of them and ask them to read it, uh, you know, it might not work. And I want them to read my work, damn it. So I'm going to publish a short book. And I thought, wow, I was probably, I don't know, 20-something at the time. And uh, and I thought if Saul Bellow can write for his readers and understand it in that way, who the hell am I or anybody else to think that, you know, I want to tell stories the way I think, you know, I want to tell you about the world the way I see the world. I, I've never had any interest in that. I want to communicate. I want to, I want to talk to people who are much more interesting and much smarter than I am. Write down what they say and then curate, then put it together in a way. Write it in a way that anybody can read it and learn a little something from it. That's that's all I'm trying to do. So in that way, my first couple of books were similar to the Freakonomics books, but what Freakonomics was different is, like you said, it's much more of a collage of a whole lot of smaller stories that are kind of puzzle cobbled together to to make a whole. And, and When to Rob a Bank is even more of a collage because I think you focus even more on the why than the aha. So So for instance... The post itself, when to rob a bank, um, you know, if I may say, can I say the conclusion say of that post? Sure. So you don't have a conclusion. No, the conclusion <laughs> uh, is when to rob a bank is never. It's a terrible. Like, right. It's just a it's, terrible idea. 35%. The ROI rate. is just dr- <laughs> terrible. Yeah. You get very little money. Your chance of arrest is very high. My, the thing that I found most interesting is that most bank robbers work in the afternoon when the chances of getting caught are much higher. And there was also an interesting discrepancy so why not, you know, between British banks yeah. and U.S. banks. But I think that's because 
in England, they don't carry guns. Well, that's true. It's also because, you know, in part because bank robbery is not very profitable, the banks don't really try that hard to prevent it. And maybe they don't even report it. So that could also be, unless it's like a big number. I don't know about that. Yeah. Uh, I'd be curious to know. I'm guessing they're compelled to because of uh, because of investor law, but I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't know. If I was a bank, I wouldn't want people to know I was like I'm regularly sh- robbed. I'm sure not, but I wonder if you, especially if you're publicly held, if you're compelled to. Yeah. Don't you think? It's an adverse event. It's not that adverse if it's just $10,000 <laughs> on a $50 billion bank. But um, uh, one chapter that really interested me, because I'm always fascinated by the path to mastery. And you you have always been um, interested throughout all these books and similar to Malcolm Gladwell with the 10,000-hour rule. In fact, it's debatable which one of you guys have brought back to life that rule that was made we popular from the early We got there first, but he 90s. made it way bigger. Yeah. 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 Well, but you, you talk about it too. So when you talk about it in this book, and it's very, very interesting in this book, you talk about a guy who, who quit his job. He had never played golf before, and so he was a horrible golfer like me. I've never played golf before. And he decided, okay, I'm going to get a golf course. I'm going to put my 10,000 hours in, which is supposedly the rule to become world-class at something, not just good, but world-class. And I'm going to get on the PGA tour. And so now by, so in your article, you, you write about him and you talk about how he learns, which was extremely interesting. Um, his method of uh, his, the method his coach uses, which is a different topic than the 10,000 hour rule, kind of the method of coaching. But although it, you could only do, you could only, no one in their right mind would, uh, um, engage that method unless they knew they were going to invest 10,000 hours because he spends, you know, the first thousand hours putting. Right. And no one who wants to play golf would have the ability or patience to do that otherwise. Right. And the part of the 10,000 hour rule is that it has to be kind of a dedicated 10,000 hours. It just can't be him hitting the ball. Yeah, deliberate practice. So he had to have a coach. But I think the style of coaching might only move the needle like 10 percent either way. So who knows? I don't know. But um. What was interesting to me was he's on hour number 4,600, and he only has a three handicap. Like, he's going to hit the PGA Tour, more most likely, in another 5,400 hours. It depends what the shape of that curve is, right? I mean... <clears throat> What's you your guess? Um, well, does Steve, what does guess Levin is, think? Because he's a golfer. I mean, the big guess is no. Uh, it's just too big a pool, and that 10,000 hours invested between the ages of probably 8 and 18 are probably going to be a lot more effective than 10,000 hours effect. Um, uh, is that because of like brain plasticity is different yeah, at those yeah. ages? Also muscle. I mean, muscle memory is real. We know that too. Mm-hmm. Uh, brain's important. Brain's really important in golf, mostly keeping it out. Um, I mean, you know, I'm a kind of moderate beginning golfer. And I would say that, you know, that learning curve, when you go from being able to shoot from shooting like 120 to shooting 90, like that's where I'm now. I usually shoot like low 90s, maybe high 80s. That's really good. Not, well, not compared to a good golfer, but like the f- beginning of that curve is really good. Like once you learn to stop totally sucking, you know, your improvement, is, your, impro- your rate of improvement is really steep. So, so but then wh- to go from where he is now, like a three and a half handicap to a plus three, it's really hard. So odds are, but he's got fifty four hundred hours left. Yeah, I know. With a coach, but there, but he's competing against guys who already have twelve thousand hours and the same age. Yeah, that's I see. the issue. So, so, but I'm rooting for him. This is a guy called Dan. The Dan Plan is the name of the website, which you should look at. And he's a great guy, and, and there's no way you could not root for him. Yeah, no, uh, it's it's a very interesting story. So let's say 
I don't want to be world class. Let's say I just want to be better than you at golf. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. so is there anything equivalent like the hundred hour rule? Like, let's mm. say I do a hundred hours of dedicated practice. Am I going to be better than ninety percent of everybody else? Or the you're actually describing the book that Levitt and I are trying to write right now, a book of, like the Free Economics of Golf book. That is exactly what we're trying. Basically, you've just said it way better than we've ever thought about it before. But we're trying to write a book that can describe to anyone who wants to get a lot better at golf without actually having to get a whole lot better at golf. Because the curve is so fast, right? The first 100 hours of anything, of most things, are going to get you. And I'm thinking of like, let's say I'm a worker at the workplace. I'm an employee of a company. And I just come to work an hour earlier every day. So over the course of a year, I've put in an extra 250 hours than anyone else. Will Will that make my results at work Basically, in the top ninety fifth percentile. Uh, I don't think or that, top fifth percentile. I don't think that quite translates that way because I think there are too many variables and too many inputs in something as abstract as like a job and work. But let's say t- let's take politics out of it. Let's say there is a way to let's like say your I'm a actual programmer. ability. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I would like to think so. I mean, that's what the theory predicts, right? Because um, it's a power law, right? Meaning right. the the beginning stuff is much greater than the last stuff. Yeah, um, you know, the guy, I mean, you should do a podcast with this guy, Anders Ericsson. Yeah, he's the original 10,000 hour guy. And he's a, he's a unbelievably, um, he's a great guy, super nice guy, very humble. He owns the literature on this. And what I mean by that is he did a lot of the experiments and does a lot of the experiments, but he, uh, but a lot of other people have done stuff too. But he is like the dean of this school of thinking. So he knows, like, if you want to ask him about chess versus checkers or pianists, you know, world class pianists versus world class golfers, he knows quite a bit about all of it. So, for instance, I was talking to him recently about golf because I want to get better. And he said one of the most – When you say you were talking to him recently, again, this is something thanks to Freakonomics. These are doors that open. Did you just pick up the phone and call him? Uh, (laughs) I was speaking at an event as a paid speaker that was at Florida State University where he teaches. And he was also one of the speakers on – during the conference and I got to catch up with him there. So, yeah. So that's pretty totally totally fringe benefit of all the other good stuff that's happened. So it's kind of ridiculous um, bounty of riches. But um, so I said to him, you know, I, I think if I recall correctly, he's not a golfer. And I said, you know, Anders, I've gotten – Levitt got me really deeply addicted to golf now and I can't shake it. So I want to, you know, be as good as I can. And I said, have you learned anything in your research about what distinguishes, you know, the better? Let's just, let's just say with putting, uh, the differences, characteristics. And he said, well, yeah, actually we learned that um, leg strength is incredibly important in putting. And I was so grateful that he told me something that, A, I didn't know, B, I never would have thought of, and C, I figure nobody else will know except everybody who's listening to this now. So ever since then, that was probably about eight months ago, when I go to the gym, you know, I spend like 80% of my time on my leg. And you think about the why. So the first question you ask him is why. He says, you know, we really don't know why. And, and, that, and that's true with a lot of the work that we do too. The what you can get to through the data, the why can be really hard. The why means getting inside people's heads sometimes in ways that is often close to impossible. Why leg strength matters so much with putting, it may have to do with stability. It may have to do with balance. It may have to do with pace. I don't know. But if the guy who knows more about this kind of stuff than anybody in the world tells me 
that the single most interesting and surprising characteristics about characteristic about people who are good at this thing that I want to be good at is leg strength. I damn it, I'm going to get my legs strong. It seems like that's an interesting book. And by the way, my putting this year so far has been extraordinary. Because you've worked on your leg strength? You know, I hadn't put it together till now. I thought I was just getting lucky. I'm still not a very good putter. But this, I haven't played much golf this year. It's We're talking on May, whatever, early May. I've only played like six, eight rounds of golf this year. Um, but I've made, I've already made like, out of all the putts I've made in my life, which aren't that many because I haven't been playing that long and I'm not that good. I probably made seven of my top 10 great putts this year. And it, do you think, have you been also working on your leg strength coinciding with that? Oh, yeah, yeah. No, that's what I'm saying. Ever since he told me that, huh. every time I go to the gym, I there are about five leg machines so it seems like a good a good book is a collection of all these little learning tidbits well, that are unknown. He kind I mean he kind of there is a book that is not a we were going to write that book essentially but then Malcolm wrote Outliers. We'd written about Anders and this whole idea we called this column it was in the New York Times called um, A Star is Made and it was about the whole birth date bulge thing for soccer ah, players. Right. Malcolm wrote about hockey players, we wrote about soccer players. And we were going to write at least a big chapter and maybe a whole book about it. But then Malcolm wrote Outliers, which was very, very good. And then we kind of felt we didn't need to. But the book that really goes into all those things about the different domains, because the the expertise is very domain-specific between surgery and computer science, whatever, there are different characteristics. There is a book called something like the Cambridge Book of Deliberate Practice or Expertise. By who? Uh, by Anders and 25 million other scholars. And it's a it's a scholarly compilation of all their academic papers. So it's not written for lay audience, but it's there. So if anyone out there wants to kind of translate that into lay language, that'd be a great project. Hmm. So, so uh, final question, which of these chapters in this book, which do you think solves the biggest problem you were curious about? Like which, <laughs> which surprised you the most, the result? And actually um, solved the problem as opposed to uh, left the question open. I would have to think uh, it was a chapter that I think we ended up calling When You're a Jet, referring to the song from West Side Story, When You're a Jet, You're a Jet All the Way from Your First Cigarette to Your Last Dying Day. And the implica- the, the parallel being when you're an economist or a free economist, you're an economist all the way. And this is a chapter basically uh, yeah. of – a bunch of different posts in which sometimes me, probably more often Levitt, you just take a look at something that you've probably looked at or thought about 10 times and the next thousand times you didn't even think about it because you just decided it. And then you just try to apply that kind of economist, economist or free economist filter to it and say, wait a minute, why is it the way it is? Why do people do that? Why don't flight attendants get tipped? We tip everybody else at the airport, right? We that tip everybody at a restaurant. Why? And so that to me is I basically by working with Levitt these past 10 years, I'm never going to be him. He's way smarter, weirder, you know, et cetera, et cetera than me. And um, but I have – learned to put that filter on, that set of glasses on, that when I go out in the world, I can look beyond the obvious. And and the biggest thing and the funnest thing to do is to upset your own cliches. I mean, this is like, this is what your whole life and career are all about is like finding the ways that people do things and they assume it's the right or best way. Buying a house instead of renting. Going to college instead of, ah, I mean, this is what you write right. about all the time. It's like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. 
Let's unpack it a little bit. A lot of conventional wisdom is right. A lot of shortcuts, a lot of heuristics are sensible. But a lot of them are only half right or a quarter right, and some of them are totally wrong. And that's what I love is finding uh, scenarios in the world for me, my friends, my family, people who read our books to say, oh, wow, cool. Hey, new new way to think about that might work out, might not. But at least I'll be a little bit more interesting or a little bit more interested at the end of the day. Well, what's great is there's 132 <laughs> of those scenarios in this book. You guys did all the work. And I get to read it and just like in a couple of hours, get all the knowledge. You're welcome. That's such the benefit of being a reader because <laughs> like I know just as much about many of these topics now as you do probably. We also priced this book. This is our longest book and it's also our cheapest because we felt that because it was drawn from a blog – it was previously published material, even though no one in their right mind would sit and read, you know, the best – would find the best 132 blog posts, that we wanted to make it obvious that we're saying this is, you know, something from our kind of journals. And it's not, you know, Freakonomics 4. It's different. I, I think it's um, – I don't know. Hope it's – I hope people like it. When to Rob a Bank, it's called. But By the way, there's one other thing. I just – just real briefly, Sorry. I wanted to mention. I had no idea. You never told me that – you were going to get a TV show based on Freakonomics called Pariah, like a Freakonomics-like oh, yeah. detective yeah. with Kelsey Grammer's production company. Yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, I just wanted to mention that. Why didn't you ever tell me about that? Uh, I guess we didn't have a backgammon game scheduled that week. Yeah. So. Was it that fast, like from beginning to end? From beginning to end, it was maybe three months. Uh, but from the time that we that the deal went through until the time it, time it fell apart <laughs> was probably only four or six weeks, yeah. We weren't we weren't very invested in it ourselves. They were just kind of wanting to use the material. But we did go to Hollywood to help them pitch it and sell it. So that was a, a so, whole experience. So on we the, did get to play a lot of golf while we were out there also. And, and on the final <clears throat> note then on this podcast, I really did like – you asked Kelsey Grammer – um, what oh, yeah. was particular? You asked him what was particular about the faces of no, great I said, TV stars. I said, what is it that distinguish? I said, you know, no offense to you. You've been hugely successful, Kelsey Grammer, on two TV shows, which is very rare to be huge on two shows, right? And uh, and I said, and no offense to you, you're, I'm sure, talented. I know you're talented. You seem to be pretty good looking, but there are a lot of talented, good looking actors out just in L.A. alone. What is it that really, you know, distinguishes the successful from the not? And he said, well, that's easy. Head size. <laughs> and I said, what are you talking about? And you he mean, was totally serious. I said, you mean like ego? He said, no, look at my head. It's huge. It looks great <laughs> on screen. <laughs> and then I realized that it's true. Head size really counts. All right. And, and on you that, and I, we have average size heads. That's why we're doing we radio. We can't make brother. it on TV. Great base for podcasts. <laughs> so thanks so much, Stephen Dubner, author of not only Freakonomics, but the book coming out today, When to Rob a Bank and 131 More Warped Suggestions and Well-Intended Rants. I highly recommend the book. Thanks, James. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network at stansberryradio.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today.